People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. And good morning. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We have a full show today, starting off with an interview with uh, Jillian from Pan Macmillan to find out some of the great titles that Macmillan is releasing into South Africa, both fiction, non-fiction, adult books, children's books. And then for the second half of the show, I've got piles of books here to get through as well. So without any further delay, Gillian, welcome to our studios. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. And you, um, you've got a wonderful list. For everyone listening, the books that Gillian's going to speak about, I've already posted the pictures of the covers of all of these books on our Facebook page. So if you miss a single title, Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. That's the official name for our page. And then just look under the heading, Books Mentioned by Gillian from Macmillan. With, without any further delay, let's look at some of these very exciting titles. Okay, great. So I thought we could kick off um, with a great book club read. Um, it's called The Accident by Gail Simmel. And it's releasing at the end of February, so it'll be in stores from the end of February. And for those of your for those of your listeners who are familiar with Gail, her last book was The Park, um, which released in 2017 at the beginning of 2017. And um, this is really strong commercial women's fiction. And Gail is a local author. She lives in Johannesburg. Uh, she's actually a media lawyer by training, and I don't know where she finds the time to write novels, but she somehow does. Uh, and what I loved about this book is it's really set in um, the leafy northern suburbs of Johannesburg, although it could be set anywhere. Uh, Gail is a great story storyteller. And if you love uh, Leanne Moriarty, um, then I think you would love Gail. It's really fast-paced. Um, I couldn't put it down. So the story is told from the perspective of four characters. Uh, we've got Catherine, who is still coming to terms with a car accident that happened 26 years ago. Although we, the reader, we aren't sure what happened. Um, and that kind of unfolds as the story progresses. We know that Catherine has been living in a fog. She's, she's suffering from depression, um, and she has been for many years. And then we meet Catherine, Catherine's adult daughter, Julia, who is single, and she's still trying to piece together what she wants to do with her life. She's a little bit wild, uh, and she starts an affair with a married man which is where things really start to get quite messy. Um, and then the third character is a character called Claire, who I absolutely love. For anybody out there who um, has a child at private school, they will identify with the character of Claire. She's like the perfect mom at the school girl. Everybody everything under control. But actually... She hasn't got anything under control. Um, and she's, she's actually friends with Julia. And um, I won't spoil it for you, but there's a, there's a twist with her husband um, and the other main characters. Um, I read it in almost one sitting, and 
you won't be disappointed. So that's definitely my pick for book club. So, um, so that book is a local book, Gail Schimmel, and it's The Accident. Correct. And it's going to be releasing at the end of February. Correct. So we're going to be back with more titles from Gillian, who's talking up some Pan Macmillan titles, straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM, and we've got an old friend of the radio station's in, well, not in the studio, but joining us over the phone. It's Gillian from Pan Macmillan. She's been in before. She's, she discusses some of the great titles that Macmillan are re- publishing in the next f- few months. We've looked at The Accident by Gail Schimmel. What else do you have on your dream list? Okay, so this one, the next one, Stephen, I'm really excited about. And um, we are publishing Melinda Gates' first book, um, She's probably better known as the wife of Bill Gates. Uh, it has a worldwide release date of the 23rd of April. And um, I was thinking about what to compare it to, and I really think it's for fans of the Michelle Obama, and it's kind of a cross between that and the Cheryl Sandberg lean in. I think if you enjoyed both those books, then um, you would enjoy this one. Uh, I, I think I think this is 2019's uh, Michelle Obama book. In terms of, I, I think that the Melinda Gates book, The Moment of Lift, is most probably going to be the publishing industry's 2019 title to rival Michelle Obama. I think so. I think so too. Um, so I absolutely love this. Uh, the book is part memoir, but it also focuses a lot on the work that the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation do for women around the world. So there's a lot of um, female empowerment um, and the projects they're involved in. In the book, Melinda comes across as incredibly humble, for a billionaire, I might add. Uh, And I love the insight into her and Bill's relationship, how they met, their first date, how they fell in love, um, the stuff that Bill did the school list when their kids were little and he was running Microsoft. And... I found it uplifting, inspiring, and it would totally be on my must-read list for 2019. So that is The Moment of Lift, How Empowering Women Changes the World by Melinda Gates. Yeah. And then um, the next title that you've got? So I wanted to chat about another local author, um, another local Joburg-based author. Uh, I put this in because it's just released, actually, and um, the time of year, it's called The Stress Code by Richard Sutton. It's nonfiction. Um, and I think he's written a really very practical book on how to beat stress. How to beat stress. He obviously understands the South African environment. He speaks a lot about finding a balance of good stress in your life. Um but he also gives you really practical tips um, on how you can beat stress. Um, some of my favorites were um, controlled breathing. He talks about the benefits of swimming, yoga and meditation, um, listening to slow, calming music, um, and drinking green tea and eating dark chocolate, which I can't argue with. Um, Rich is actually a, an osteopath by training, but... 
just sort of as an aside, he is currently um, working with Maria Sharapova on the WTA on the tennis tour. So he really knows his stuff, um, and he's an expert in this field. So anyone feeling stressed might want to pick up a copy of the stress code. And he is a local author once again, living in Johannesburg. That's correct. So I think everyone in the city is going to see or hear Richard either on the radios or at an event because I think when he gets back to South Africa, there's going to be quite a a blitz of publicity around this title. Yes. Then I think the next few books you want to talk about are fiction. Correct. So I've got two fiction books. um, One releasing, the next one um, called uh, The Anonymous Girl. It also releases at the end of February, so you don't have long to wait. Um, and it's by the, the duo Vice Katrina, uh, which came out in early in 2017. Um, another great kind of book club read. It's a psychological thriller. And um, the story kind of hinges around the main character. She, her name is Jessica Ferris. She lives in New York. She's in her late twenties. Um, her profession is, an, is a makeup artist, uh, and she's on a job one day, and she hears about a clinical trial, um, a psychology clinical trial, where you can take part, you can earn extra money, and she thinks, "Well, I could really do with the extra cash." Sounds like quite an easy trial to take part in, and she signs up, and um, she meets this, a professor of psychology who's running the trial. And then things start to um, take a darker turn. Like it, it, it all starts out fine, and then the questions get deeper, and she gets sucked into this um, world. And the book is kind of centered around obsession. Um, you don't really know the motive for the trials. Um, and then it, I won't spoil it, but it sort of unfolds from there. So that's a good setup, the springboard for An Anonymous Girl by the duo Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pakinen. That's right. And it's a dark, female-driven thriller. Yes. Okay, it's that's typically um, summarized. Okay, and that's a growing genre as well. Yes. And then the next novel you want to speak about, it's a beautiful cover. I think there's a lot of hype around it. Yes, so it's probably one of our most easily anticipated um, fiction debuts of the year, The Doll Factory. And um, you've got a little bit of a wait because it's actually only out towards the end of May. Um, but I thought I might just whet people's appetite and they can put it on their reading list as one to watch out for. I think uh, a great comparison is If You Love the Miniaturist by Jesse Burton. Uh, which came out a couple of years ago. It, it's got a similar kind of feel. It's set in um, 1852 in London. It's got that real sort of dark, atmospheric setting, uh, which draws you into the story straight away. And the title kind of takes its name from the two main characters, who are a set of twins, Um who are in the, I think in their late teens, early twenties, and they're working in, um, in like a little miniature doll shop 
painstakingly painting the dolls. And they're kind of in the back office, and the one sister um, has a little collarbone that she was born with, um, and the other sisters are really beautiful, and she has aspirations of being a painter. Um, but there's this real dark thread running through the book, and you there's this menacing character kind of lurking in the shadows, and you're not quite sure... Uh, what it's all about and, and what's going to happen. Um, it's historical fiction and it's really very highly anticipated. And, uh, I'm looking forward to reading that as well. And the, 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 the mixture of the art world and um, London in the, 18, in the 1850s, it's, yeah. it's a very rich uh, world in which to look at all these different themes. Uh, it's, it's, as you said, it, it does bring back the miniaturist to one's mind, even though that was set in Golden Age Holland, but you've got this yeah. interplay between art and human interest. So yeah. the, the Dolls Factory is definitely on my list of books to read. We've got a few more books to discuss with Gillian. We want to look at books for children, and we'll be discussing a few titles straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We are in conversation with Gillian from Pan Macmillan. We're looking at some of the really exciting titles that they are publishing over the course of the first half of this year. We've just looked at The Doll Factory by Elizabeth McNeil, a debut novel with a connection, an, interne- an, inter- an intersection between art, the pre-Raphaelites in London in the 1850s, and a very strong human interest story at the very core. Uh, all the books that Gillian's mentioned, pictures of the covers of these books have been posted onto our Facebook page. So if you've had your interest piqued by anything that has been mentioned, and I can't imagine anyone who hasn't, go to Facebook, search for people of the book on 101.9 High FM, look for the covers of these books. And when you're next in a bookshop, you'll know exactly which books to pick up because you'll be familiar with the covers already. Now, for young readers, Gillian, you've got two titles yes. that you've selected. Yes, I didn't want to leave, leave the young readers off. Um, we are very excited about this next book. Um, Julia Donaldson has our, our best-selling, um, best-loved children's book author, has written a brand-new um, picture book. And um, what's so special about this new picture book, it's called The Go-Away Bird. And it was inspired by her trip to South Africa um, a couple of years ago when she was out here and she went on a um, safari and, she, you know, she was really inspired by that trip. And um, as a result, the go-away bird has kind of um, been produced or been written. And it's a very sweet story. It's based on the work. Obviously, told in that same rhyming text that Julia is so famous for, 
Uh, it's coming in April. It's beautifully illustrated, and um, we're really excited about that. So that's the go away bird. It's, uh, I've, I've posted a picture of the cover. Very evocative. Of the birds and the, the, the specific bird, it's the Lurie bird that's so common in northern suburbs, Johannesburg. And then your next book is the Trevor Noah book for the, um, Born a Crime, but the Young Readers edition. That's correct. So, um, a lot of your listeners will be familiar with, um, Trevor Noah's, um, autobiography, Born a Crime. And it's been an absolute bestseller in this market for us. Um, and what we've done is we've adapted the original adult version for younger readers. So we've worked on the content, we've made the stories um, easier to read, we've taken out the parts that aren't suitable for younger readers. We are suggesting that this is a young adult book, so for 12 and up we think that's the, that's the right age group. Um, for grade eight and up. And we hope to reach a whole new kind of, um, age group of Trevor's fans with this book. And introduce them to the life that he lived in South Africa before Correct. he became famous. That's right. That's right. He went to Sandringham High School down the road. <laughs> So this is something else to look out for. It's the Young Readers edition of Trevor Noah's memoir, Born, or his autobiography, Born a Crime. So that's a very, very comprehensive list. You've covered commercial fiction, um, literary fiction, non-fiction, and children's books as well. So it's uh, something for everybody. And uh, a whole lot of titles for our listeners to look out for for the next few months uh, of 2019. Thanks, Stephen. And we, th- we thank you for sharing your passion and the books that you are so passionate about with our listeners. Thank you. We look forward to having you back on the show in who knows how many weeks' time to discuss the next list of unbelievable books to read. Thank you. For the rest of the show, we've now got a whole lot of books that uh, I want to talk about. Um, once again, a very big, wide mix. So I'm going to start off with the few books that I wanted to do at the end of last week, but we just ran out of time. So staying on the African continent, we're going to look at a book by Richard Crompton. It's set in Kenya. It's a crime thriller, and it's the third in a series of books that features uh, a Kenyan police, uh, a, a Maasai from the Maasai tribe, and it's called Night Runners. The first two books in the series, which are available, they have done quite phenomenal. They've done phenomenally well in the as as bestsellers, The Honey Guard and Hell's Gate. The author is Richard Crompton. He is a former journalist for the BBC and other broadcasters, and who has lived for many years in East Africa. He won the Daily Telegraph Short Story Award in 2010. And since then, he has published three novels. He currently lives in New York with his wife and young family. But the time that he spent living in East Africa really gives authenticity to his books. And The Night Runner is in the slums of Nairobi. There is a place where the fires burn constantly and the stench of decay never fades. 
Dandora, the city's dumping ground, is filled with shadowy figures the world has left behind. Here, too, are rumors of the night runners, those said to be possessed by spirits or even the devil. Detective Molal understands what it means to be an outsider. Born in a Maasai village and forever at odds with the corrupt ranks of the city police, he is drawn to the case of Fatuma, a young girl who has gone missing in the slum of Dandora. His search takes him deep into Nairobi's underworld from rap clubs to witch doctors and to the lair of the self-styled overlord of Dandora. He learns that Fatuma is not the first person to have disappeared and to find out what has happened to her, Molal must open his mind to things he cannot see. So this is set in East Africa, in Nairobi, one of Africa's growing megacities. We're looking at the whole city from a policeman's point of view, but with a special focus on the slums, the poorest people of Nairobi, and the people who take advantage of them. The next book we're going to look at is Popular Science. It's a book written by Carl Zimmer, and it's called She Has Her Mother's Laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. The book is quite thick, um, but for anyone interested in heredity, genetics, this is a, a great place to either start or, if you've already started, to further your knowledge of Genetics and, her- and heredity. Genealogy is apparently the second most searched subject on the internet. Now that we can map our genes, we want to know where we come from. But heredity is not as simple as the passing on of traits from parents to offspring. The mother can acquire cells from their own children. Race is not a feature of the natural world beyond our social experience. And we can even chop up DNA to replace the bits we don't like with a technology called CRISPR. And a lot of these, a lot of those genealogy sites that you find on the internet are actually nonsense. Carl Zimmer in his painstakingly researched book takes a long view of heredity. Stories of how discoveries were made often start with farming and plants, as in with Mendel's peas, continue via unusual humans, so there's discussions on the Habsburg jaw, which the Habsburgs were the royal family of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and obviously their jaw was preserved in many, many family portraits. So we go from farming and Mendel's peas via the Habsburg jaws before being proved or disproved by DNA sequencing and then potentially rethought as knowledge increases. Many biographies in the book paint powerful pictures. Emma Walverton who was born in 1889, was sent away by her impoverished family to the Vineland Training School for Feeble-Minded Children. Henry Goddard, who ran the institution, traced her family tree and found evidence, he thought, that the mental deficiency was hereditary. His popular book, The Kalikak Family, inspired a young man across the Atlantic in Austria called Adolf Hitler. The Nazis' eugenics program was based on research that turned out to be completely false. So what's interesting, we're following the development of genetics, academic and also in the popular mind, through politics and government programs. 
1910, intelligence tests on immigrants arriving in New York were used to prove that we, that America was getting the poorest of every race. This is a sentiment that's echoed by Donald Trump and his desire to build a wall that's holding up the American government. One prominent psychologist claimed blacks were as intelligent on average as a white person after a lobotomy. Actually, just a few weeks ago, Chris Watson, who is part of the deer that discovered the DNA structure, was rebuked publicly for saying a similar statement based on what he thought was genetics as well. So these ideas that were written 100 years ago, we do find that they keep coming back under the guise of science. It makes you wonder about some of today's scientists who insist on large innate biological differences between men and women's minds, or, as I said, between nations. And there you have uh, some fa- uh, between races. You have some famous scientists who are still proposing such things. So in his book, Carl Zimmer, in his book, She Has Her Mother's Laugh, Carl Zimmer packs every page full of learning and years of work. Some of the science around genetic diseases you might find a little bit challenging. You might have to go ask a biology teacher for an extra lesson to help you through those pages, but it will pay off because you will be rewarded with a better understanding of the basic science that underpins so much of today's world. Um The book offers clear insights into fast-moving areas and asks big questions. Carl Zimmer doesn't shy away from the big questions. Scientists can eradicate diseases today using biology, using genetics. They can alter DNA, and they can change human heredity. Should they? What could be at stake if they get it wrong? So if these issues do interest you, or If you find yourself a little bit at odds and ends when you hear discussions on the radio or you read articles in newspapers or news magazines about biology, about genetics, about heredity, and you want a good primer that will open the gateways to understanding, look out for Carl Zimmer's book. She has her mother's laugh, The Powers, Perversions, and Potential of Heredity. It is a long book. Um, it's over, it's just under 600 pages, but that means you get your money's worth. Uh, it's very, very well researched, but it's also very, very accessible and it will give you an entree into the world of genetics and heredity, which keeps coming up again and again in discussions, in politics, in mor- mor- discussions about morality. How much power should we have? over the basic building blocks of life. Now, from non-fiction in genetics, we're going to go to non-fiction South African. The book came out last year, at the end of last year. It's by Graham, Graham Varney, and it's The Last Hooray, South Africa and the Royal Tour of 1947. It has been mentioned on the show when Tracy Schweizer from Jonathan Ball came in. She mentioned this book. It is published by Jonathan Ball Publishers, and it is... Quite an important piece of historical Africana. I just want to read from the introduction to the book. This is a tale of long ago now. Almost all the players have left the stage, although, phenomenally, one of the leads, Queen Elizabeth II, still survives 
in the central, pivotal role for which the tour of Southern Afri- of South Africa that the book describes must surely have been a partial preparation and a formative experience. The empire has vanished, and Britain and the Commonwealth have changed out of all recognition. The South Africa the book describes has gone too. Physically, a little remains, often much altered, brutalized or neglected. But the photographs, documents, and above all newsreels provide a window on the setting of these extraordinary and momentous months and the events that played out within them. Added to this, there are contemporary accounts, like gold dust for the researchers, and there survive to the memories of old people, some vivid, others also vivid, but alas, not always supported by the evidence of hard facts. They record a world that was essentially middle class in its values and a differential one at that. But images, memories, and manners are not enough. They do not generate the authentic whiffs and stenches of an age, and the reader is asked to conjure up the pervading smells of heat and dust, of acrid railway engine smoke and cinders, of eucalyptus and pepper trees, of yardley's lavender, and the friendly tongue of the Indian Ocean on a summer's morning, of human sweat and horse sweat, and saddle leather, of well-watered English annuals and rain on the parched African felt. This book attempts to place the royal tour of 18, uh, 19, sorry, 1947 in its post-war context of the history of South Africa and the Commonwealth. The Union of South Africa was then was an autonomous dominion in what was still called the British Commonwealth, and Jan Smuts, by far its most celebrated Prime Minister and internationalist, clearly saw it best served and best able to serve the wider international community in this status. At that date, therefore, despite being made up of many tribes and races, the country bore the unmistakable imprint of Pax Britannica. Aside from what G. Ward Price, a senior journalist following the tour, euphemistically described as minority politics, the social character of white South Africa was, he considered, the closest possible overseas reproduction of English provincial life. The average Englishman, he wrote, when asked where he feels most at home in the empire, says South Africa. English-speaking South Africa gave a decided flavor to the era. With hindsight, some Afrikaans speakers who grew up then will also now admit this. Its history has subsequently tended to be swept under the carpet. For in spite of its immediate success, the Royal Tour of 1947 would be the swan song of that age in the land of South Africa. In attempting to reinforce the concept of a constitutional monarchy as the binding force of the British Commonwealth, it could not fail to focus attention on the issue of a revitalized and aggressive Afrikaner ascendancy with an emotive aim to transform the Union back into the Boer Republic, out of which its supporters felt they had been cheated in 1910. And although their proposed boycotts mostly failed, it was hardly surprising that emerging black and Indian politicians attempted to use the royal tour to highlight the issue of inequality and racial segregation. The issue now hovered unresolved, sorry, this issue now hovered unresolved and incrementally resented like a storm cloud on the horizon of a seemingly endlessly endlessly summer land 
D.F. Malan, the leader of the national, nationalist opposition, knew his predominantly white electorate well. If the success of the royal tour had succeeded in significantly neutralizing the urgency felt among his followers to break with the imperial connection, he had up his sleeve another far more potent neurosis to appeal to. This was race and their fear of being swamped by a black majority. The telling moment would come a year hence at the general election. For now, from February to April 1947, much of the Union, together with its neighboring territories, gave itself over to participate in and follow avidly through the media the royal progress, the king and queen's every breath and movement, as the visiting novelist Enid Bagnold put it in a letter home, was being blown through Africa at all hours on the wireless. This is the introduction to Graham Varney's The Last Hurrah, South Africa and the Royal Tour of 1947. On the cover there's a beautiful picture, black and white, of a boat with the royal family approaching Table Bay with Table Mountain in the background. The book's published by Jonathan Ball, and it's a very powerful, evocative piece of African Africanus history with the royal family in southern Africa, with South the Union of South Africa in 1947 on the cusp of major political, social and social changes just beyond the horizon. We'll be back with some more books straight after this break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. The next book we're going to look at here on People of the Book on 101.9 High FM is the new Barbara Kingsolver. It's called Unsheltered. It's published by Faber and Faber. Barbara Solver's the author of the Poisonwood Bible, amongst many other books. And this book is two stories that are joined by the same house. The two stories happen about 145 years apart. Barbara Kingsolver wanted to write a book that would resonate with people living and feeling unsheltered, not only in America, but in the world today, where all givens, all things we take for granted, are no longer necessarily true. You can work through university and incur big amounts of student debt, but there won't be a job for you when you graduate. You could have a job. You could build a career, but the world's changing economics could destroy the organization that you work for. And in your mid-50s, you could be without a job. Your children might fail to take flight and they might still be in your house when they are in their 20s or even 30s. The things that we've taken for granted no longer are necessarily true. The world is going through a huge amount of change and people are feeling unsheltered. They're not being protected with the normal things that we have grown up with and taken for granted. In order to illustrate this idea, Barbara Kinsolver wanted to write two stories, one contemporary set in America and the other one about set in another time period where there was similar amount of change of people feeling unsheltered. And she joined those two stories in the same house. This house has been falling down, creating a degree of almost the people living in the house being unsheltered. And they are joined, these two stories are joined over the course of 
145 years by the house. In the modern day, in 2016, in Vineland, we meet Willa Knox. She is a woman who has built a career around her journalism, and she's the editor of a magazine. And she gets to work one day to discover that the magazine is going to be closed. And she's in her mid-50s. And who's going to hire a journalist in her mid-50s when journalism is undergoing the most wrenching change in the history of Western journalism? Her husband worked very hard and they moved around to support his career for him to become a tenured professor. But the college at which he lectures has also closed down. So now they are both looking for work. And her husband has to take a very low-paying job as an adjunct professor in a college. They live at home in Vineland in this house that's crumbling down with the husband, Yuno's father, who's a cantankerous man who's basically a titanic ship of pre-existing conditions, medical conditions. That's what Willis says to the triage nurse who's looking after him. And he's a firm supporter of Trump in the presidential election year. And in their house are Willa and Yuno's two children. There's the golden boy who studied at Stanford and Harvard Law School, but now he hasn't got a job and he's suffocating under student debt. And then there's the daughter, Tig, who dropped out of college to go occupy Wall Street. She is a social activist. And they're all in this house. And this is where the story starts. People feeling totally unsheltered and unmoored in a world that has just morphed out of all recognition. Now we go back to 1871, to Vineland, when Vineland was a utopian community set up by a visionary visionary leader in order to update the world to the modern challenges of 1871 America. America is once again very divided along political and racial lines. It's just after the Civil War has come to an end. A treaty concluded the Civil War, but the underlying tensions between the North and the South were not ever truly resolved. So, once again, a polarized American society, politically, economically, racially. And in Vineland, there is a new science teacher, Thatcher Greenwood. Now, this was a time when there were very few high schools in America, and Thatcher Greenwood is a high school science teacher. He wants to teach his students about the revolutions happening in science, one of those revolutions being the work of Charles Darwin. And he comes across extreme opposition from the community. Now, he can't afford to lose his job because he's married, he's he's newly married. His wife and his mother-in-law are very socially ambitious, and they have very big material needs. And if he knows if he loses his job, he's going to lose his wife as well. And he finds in Vineland a kindred spirit, someone who's also inspired by Darwin and the revolutions in science. And this is an actual historical figure. Her name is Mary Treat, a scientist, an adventurist, uh, and she actually was writing and in communication with Charles Darwin. So Thatcher Greenwood, the science teacher in 1871 Vineland, meets 
Mary treats. And he has to resolve his sense of being unsheltered in a changing America, in a world whose very fundamental, most foundational beliefs are being questioned by the new science. And these two stories are joined because Thatcher Greenwood and Willa Knox live in the same house. And this house has been falling down for over a century and a half. And all of this is in the first opening scenes of Barbara Kingsolver's book, Unsheltered. I'm just giving you the projected the, the, the point of projection for where everything starts. So that is Barbara Kingsolver's Unsheltered, looking at how we deal with change when we think that the world we're living in is coming to an end. The next book that I want to talk about is very, very different, whereas Barbara Kingsolver's Unsheltered deals with big themes. The next book is just really an extended piece of mood writing or atmosphere creating an atmosphere. So you don't read The Waiter by Matthias Feldbacken for the thrill, for the thrilling plot, or even for the story. You read it just to be inserted into a specific setting. And that setting is The Hills Restaurant in Oslo in Norway. The Hills is Oslo's most esteemed restaurant. It's an institution stewed in tradition and clinging to the faded grandeur of old Europe. And we inhabit this restaurant through the pages of the book The Waiter, where the waiter almost uh, takes over our, our minds and he he describes the people who come to eat in this restaurant and the daily events in their lives, their struggles and then their choices, the, the cut, the, 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 the pairing of food with wine and he suggests to the people how the restaurant works, all the people who work in the restaurants and his favorite clients. And then when someone knew a new a young lady, a beautiful young lady, walks into the restaurant one day and she joins one of the existing groups who always eat lunch in the restaurant, almost tipping the waiter's life out of balance, having to deal with all these new changes in the restaurant. Uh, it's a charming, charming book, recreate, recreating the sense of oh, uh, a traditional eating establishment in Oslo, but it could be anywhere in the world. And just the interplay between the eaters, the food and the life stories, just the, in the microcosm of all of these people. So you can reserve yourself a seat at the Hills in Oslo by going out and buying or reading a copy of The Waiter. It's charming and it's it's just you just feel like you could close your eyes and you're just in this golden setting where the mood, the atmosphere is so beautifully created and you just enmesh yourself in the lives of these diners. We'll be back with a few more books straight after this ad. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Last week I did a bit of a theme of adult fairy tales. We looked at um, Spinning Silver. And we looked at, um, oh, my mind goes blank. We looked at a number of books um, with 
adult adult books, but with um, with fairy tale reworking of fairy tale themes. And there was a third book that I wanted to get to, but I just ran out of time. And that is the new book by Deborah Harkness. She's the author of the All Souls trilogy. One of those books, the first in the trilogy, a discovery of witches. I did review here on the show. And it's, it's, it's really historical fiction, but she threw in lots of vampires. So her new book is called Times Convert, and it uses the characters from her All Souls trilogy, and it adds a new story to that universe of characters. The All Souls trilogy has become a multi-million best-selling phenomenon around the world. Transart will be made into a TV series by Netflix or by Amazon eventually because it is, it has such a strong following and the history is so interesting and the, the overlay of the, the fantasy element on top of the history does make for a very rich tapestry. So the book Times Convert, Marcus Whitmore was made a vampire in the 18th century. Over 200 years later, he finds himself in love with Phoebe, Taylor, a human who decides to become a vampire herself. But her transformation will prove as challenging now as it was for Marcus when he first encountered the vampire Matthew de Clermont, his sire. While Phoebe is secreted away, Marcus relives his own journey from the battlefields of the American Revolutionary War through the treachery of the French Revolution to a bloody finale in New Orleans. His belief in liberty, equality and brotherhood challenged at every stage by the patriarchy of the Teclermonts, that's the vampire family. What will he and Phoebe discover in one another when they are finally reunited at Le Revenant? Beneath the watchful gaze of Matthew and his wife, Diana Bishop. This is the story of Times Convert. So we're going to look at the creation of vampires. It's all very much in the, the post-Twilight book. So if you read Twilight as a teenager and you really did enjoy all that otherworldliness of the vampires, but now you want something with a little bit more, I suppose, historical meat, uh, anchored into real events, although the vampire part is all fantasy, and you want to continue reading this type of genre. Look for Deborah Harkness, her All Soul trilogy, and then this standalone book, which does is built on the characters of her uh, All Soul trilogy. It's Times Convert. I wanted to just mention two other books that I wanted to talk about today. One is um, it's available already. It's by Chigozi Obioma, a Nigerian author who was shortlisted, he was shortlisted for the Booker for his debut novel. His new book is An Orchestra of Minorities. I will get to that next week. And then the other book is Once Upon a River by Diane Setterfield. She wrote the phenomenally successful The Thirteenth Tale about five or six, about ten years ago. Her new book, Once Upon a River, is going to be coming out in February. I'm busy reading it so that I can interview her here on this show in two weeks' time. So those are two very powerful books to look out for. And until next week, continue reading and good Shabbos.